0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, welcome to The Mindfield. We'll eat Ali here. Scott Stevens is my co host. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking it's only seven days until we do the succession show. That's what you're <laughs> thinking, isn't it? <laughs>
0: That's what everyone's thinking, Waleed. That's what
1: everyone's thinking. I don't know what it means that they're thinking that, whether it means they're looking forward to it or they just got in their diary they don't need to listen to the minefield that week. I
0: don't know. So, 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 so sorry, when people pass you on the street, yeah. do they say, oh,
1: Waleed, it's only 11 days now? Uh, I'm, so, Until... I'm so tired of it, Scott. It's just it really? it's overwhelming. Okay. Okay. Uh, no, uh, no, actually, one or two people have said it. Oh, is that right? Is Maybe that right? one. Okay. Okay. <laughs> It's not. It's not like AFL reason, Grand Final week. Is I, my point. It's not the same. Why as that.
0: was I more encouraged by two than one? It's, just it's funny. exactly one more.
1: Well, it's also double. <laughs> it's double. So, this is the thing about small bases. Anyway, this is a roundabout wave. We've been talking about this for weeks. If this is the first time you've ever listened to the minefield, um, this will seem a bit weird. But we're doing a show, um, kind of like a minefield, not. Like book club, but not confined to books, if you know what I mean. No. And next week is the first time we're having a crack at it. It may not go well. We'll find out. But we're looking at Succession. That is the television show, um, which you may have seen, which is why we've chosen it, because we didn't want to make it go far and wide to try to track down material in order to read it or watch it or whatever. So, anyway, that's coming up next week. Uh, it's that's definitely true. not. Can I? Yes, go on. Well, I was just going
0: to say, you're right. It's not a book club. But I'll just tell our listeners what else it's not. Oh. It's not three of us sitting around moralizing about whether characters are good or bad and what moral lessons can be extrapolated by their foibles. Um, uh, any, anybody who's had any sense of this show should get a sense of the way that we understand the moral life, its connections to everyday life, to the language that we use, to the relationships that we nurture, to the habits and daily practices that make up. Uh, everything that is precious and best within human relationships and creaturely lives. So it's something far more like us trying to pay attention to what's going on in a very complex but I think beautifully written show and allowing that show to pay a degree of attention to us. Uh, what light does it shed on our lives as well as what do
1: the practices of moral uh shed onto it?
0: It's it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. Willett. I'm really excited about it.
1: Sorry, I probably should have written that down because I think I might have to change how I'm preparing for that show. Anyway, <laughs> today uh, is definitely not that show. Today no, is. It's not. Do you know what? I, I'm glad that we're doing this show, Scott, because it would have been so easy for us not to, in that the moment in time we are marking today kind of felt like it would have been a huge, huge moment maybe a year ago. Hmm, but it's right. turned out to be a bit of an afterthought. Like it happened and we went, oh, look, that happened and then just kind of moved on. But we're doing this show because we actually had thought about the questions that this issue raised a long time ago and thought that would make a good show and then never did it. So in some ways this is our last chance to do it. <laughs> so we to, right. but, <laughs> but in other ways it's, it's fitting, isn't it, that we sort of identify this thing that hasn't dominated our news cycle, especially with Ukraine being the way it is, yeah. um, and sort of say, no, let's, let's meditate on this for a bit. Let's actually think about um, what we might be able to derive from this and what it says about ourselves. I am talking, of course, about the fact that this is the week that the walls finally came down around Australia. The international border is open. It is frankly astonishing, Scott, isn't it, that I would say that sentence, like th- that we ended up in a situation we're bringing the border down and reopening our border to the world was a thing that was going to happen. I still remember the day I was in a television studio doing a promo and the um, federal government had announced that it was shutting the international border and it mm. felt like something from like a, a dystopian um, novel or television series that I was – Well,
0: it March 19th, 2020.
1: Incredible. Just mm. incredible, isn't it? And then to think that it just stayed for so long, like close to two years, did it become normal? Did it? Did it is it still weird? I, I don't. I, I. really don't know. And then how do we end up in this situation where it happened and we all kind of went, "Oh, that's nice," and then sort of moved on to worrying about Ukraine. There's so much there, and the questions I think it raises are really interesting. About not just the opening of the border this week, but the the whole saga of shutting the border and then um, allowing people to come back home under certain circumstances, but that have to quarantine for 14 days and if people wanted to leave. It wasn't just that you couldn't get in. You couldn't leave. If you're a Australian citizen, that's right. Yeah, um, mm. unless you got a travel exemption, which we were one of very few countries in the world to do that. Um, I heard someone quip that it was us in North Korea and I'm still trying to figure out if... That's true, or it was a joke, but it's it could be true. Is the point? Like it was very mm. rare that, that that happened, and I think it raises all sorts of interesting questions about um, how we regard Australian citizenship and Australianness, and to whom we, in fact, uh, give our solidarity. Interesting. Uh, I did you. How many Australians did you know who were living abroad during all this? Uh, two, three, not too many. Were they angry?
0: One of the things that I do find about Australians who live abroad is that there's a degree of nostalgia for Australia, but there's also a degree of relief that they're not here.
1: Um, That's interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't – yeah, it's it, it's funny. That's exactly how I feel about the United States. <laughs> there are a handful of things for which I feel the degree of nostalgia, but I overwhelmingly think, thank God, um, I'm someplace else.
1: Um, mm, hello to our American some... listeners. I, I had a friend overseas I was very close to, or I am very close to, and hmm. I remember there was a day he took – I think he took a photo of his passport and the statement that's on the inside that guarantees – free passage into yeah. Australia, and he just sent me that photo. He was miffed. Yeah. And I, I reckon there are a lot of people in that category. And I, I think it, it's arresting. It causes us to think about what citizenship means precisely because it was unthinkable until this moment arrived. Mm. And you know that thing, we, we talk about this a lot, that it's, uh, it's only when you, you face these moments of stress or these extraordinary situations that you find out what's really there. Hmm. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned this on air or not, but the Arabs have a saying that a vessel can only leak what is in it. Um, nice. Yeah, that that sort of idea that this may have revealed something about the way we actually see Australians, Australianness, Australian citizenship, Australians who are not in Australia, non-Australians who are in Australia. So this this matrix. Um, that just sort of emerged, I think, out of the COVID emergency.
0: So I actually love all that. It's almost poetic. Can we start isolating what I think are maybe the three nodes or the three big concepts that are at stake Mm. in this discussion? Sure. Um, Because honestly, I'll confess that I feel torn on almost every one of them. Um, and I'm okay. hoping that's interesting. I mean, this, yeah, the whole purpose of this show is just sort of therapy, <laughs> um, ch- trying to lead me from confusion to, uh, well, hopefully clarity. So uh, we, I, I think we should be clear from the outset that the process of reopening the borders, this has been taking place gradually since October last year. And it, it is striking to me, Willie. and I do think we need to stress this. That the experience of the last two years has been the experience of Australians separated from the world and separated from one another. There, of course, is the separation of Australians from Australians living abroad. There's the experience of the separation of, say, permanent residents in this country from family abroad or even from spouses or partners. There's also the experience of Australian citizens separated from one another on either side of state borders. And so ever since October, and you remember, I kind of predicted this, that as the full weight of Christmas began bearing down on public sentiment and consciousness, it was unfathomable to me that state borders, even in the face of Omicron, that state borders would, arraign, uh, would remain um, stubbornly uh, erected, preventing family from from getting together. So a great deal of the experience of the last two years has been us uh, separated from one another, and then Australia as a whole separated from the rest. Of the world, and so you know, began with states in October, and then from November, uh, um, Australian uh, residents could begin leaving Australia, or sorry, uh, citizens and permanent residents could begin leaving Australia. Uh, A few weeks afterwards, fully vaccinated temporary visa holders and international students could come in, and now this week, uh, uh, um, tourists who are fully vaccinated can Mm -hmm. can come here. Yeah. Um, so it is interesting. I, I think you're right that this is a momentous moment. But let's let's I- let's identify the big issues. Number one is what is Australia's concept of a border in the first place? Mm-hmm. I mean, we tend to view borders not just as forms of defence and as expressions of sovereignty, but also as weapons that are uniquely at the control of the federal government. Um, To that extent, there is something of a utilitarian conception like so many other aspects of our common life. Borders are things to be wielded. There aren't many rights that attach to borders, so so much so that many of the rights that are ordinarily or unarguably attached to citizenship um, are simply thrown to the side uh, in the face of a raised border, a raised drawbridge. You would almost say, wouldn't you, Willie, that Fortress Australia – is a more determinative, in many respects, a more normative concept than even Australian citizenship.
1: Is that no, too much? So I think that if you'd said that to me two years ago, I would have said that's crazy. So I think, I think the pandemic has revealed that that's true, or at least it's true under certain circumstances. But no, I see, I, I'd always been under the assumption, and I, I think I am far from alone here, hence the anger of Australians living abroad, that citizenship was the key to the border. That that was the very thing that unlocked it. I mean, we'd established mm. that that refugee status doesn't. Um, we'd established that a desire to migrate doesn't. Skilled migration does, but only subject to a cap. That's right. So so we'd established those things. So non-citizenship, the 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 border and the idea of a fortress was a category that I think exclusively applied to the non-citizen. Mm-hmm. Think of citizenship as the kind of cheat code that, that gets around that. Um, what's astonishing to me, actually astonishing is too strong a word because as it was happening, I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. So well, I suppose it was the opposite of astonishing. But in hindsight, what surprised me is that the notion of Australian citizenship was not strong enough to penetrate the border. Hmm. Would you have said otherwise before COVID? No,
0: no, I wouldn't have. Um, And I think what really brought this home then was the experience of, now I've seen different figures, you're going to have to correct me if I've gotten something wrong here, but the experience of nearly 9,000 Australians who were in India. In, what was it, late April, May last year, when the Delta variant uh, the outbreak of that variant first began to really, really gain steam on the subcontinent. Um, there were some nine thousand Australian citizens citizens not just temporary residents, mm. not just permanent residents, but citizens who either could not make their way back into the country or faced pains of severe penalties, prison fi- uh, uh, prison time, fines. I mean, that that for me was the moment. Okay. For the sake of some other principle, and I want to come to that other principle in a moment, for the sake of some other principle, Australia is prepared not to extend the most fundamental obligations of return to citizens.
1: Yes, although we'd been building that for a while before the India situation. Yes, we had. Yes, I think
0: that's right. So here's, here's my next question, or here's the next principle that I think is at play here. Yep. Um, I don't think it's right to say... That Fortress Australia, quote-unquote, is an arbitrary or simply self-serving concept. It is a concept in the service of what is regarded as a greater good. And that greater good would be the protection of, quote-unquote, us. So whoever we are, Fortress Australia serves as the walls that ensure the protection of that community. And that's why... um, It's most common that uh, when, uh, say, unwanted arrivals come or when certain persons are being targeted as being excluded, they are described as either putting Australian sovereignty at risk or as introducing unwanted elements into the Australian community. Mm -hmm. That, I don't think, is all that unusual. I mean, borders function, of course, as forms of protection, what I think is unusual is the extent to which borders and the protection of us seems to override any other or countervailing claim, as we just discussed, including the claim of citizenship. Now, yeah. let me just – or sorry, not the claim of citizenship. I don't mean the claim as in people claim to the be citizens. I mean, to the but. claims that attach to citizenship. The claims that attach to – that this, I think, brings us to the final point or to the final concept that's at play here, and that is – just how rich, how robust, how extensive does the concept of solidarity reach within our common life? Or can even the claim of solidarity, is that something that can be dispensed with or shrugged off in the face of or in the interests of other seemingly more worthy claims or demands? And I think what's sort of interesting to me here, Walid, I mean, I'm, I, I've never been I do think there are absolute claims that attach to a concept of, say, common humanity. I think there are even metaphysical moral claims that attach to something like that, something like the infinite preciousness of human beings that demand, that ought to arrest our attention. But I don't—I've never quite seen the word solidarity— as being able to apply or being able to attach to, a, say, a universal concept, say, you know, the solidarity of all human beings, I just don't, mm. I just don't see that. If we were invaded by another planet, I think maybe you could talk about solidarity of all human beings, yeah. but otherwise, I, I just don't well, see that as a which, as a by universal the way, concept. is
1: kind of what happened with COVID, right?
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: Actually. So I, I would say, I mean, I think I know where you're going here, and I think I'd mostly agree, but the, the caveat I'd put is to say. Australia felt like a highly solidaristic place in the early parts of the pandemic. We've discussed yeah. this before, right? Yeah. Um, and the solidarity in some ways excluded non-citizens, but in other ways included them. Mm, mm, that's true. Um, non-citizens, I'm almost certain, were able to access free testing. Yep. In the same way, that because we needed that to be the case. Mm. We suddenly found a way to house the homeless, mm-hmm. just put them in hotel rooms and because we had an interest in them having a home in which they could isolate. So, in other words, the epidemiological undifferentiatedness of people, that was a really...
0: They can can all be
1: potential bearers. Yes. yeah, meant that we had to (laughs) engage with them on those terms, right? Um. Whereas, you do realize,
0: you do realize, Walid, this is so funny. What? Um, there, there is this principle, this movement, this idea, this form of thinking within philosophical theology called negative theology, which is that you can never describe uh, transcendence in terms of what it is. You can only describe it in terms of what it is not. Right. And it's by a series of negations that you come to a positive, something yeah. approaching a positive conception of the divine or the transcendent or whatever. Mm. In some ways, what you're saying is. The fact of any human being being a potential bearer of the COVID nineteen virus means that it created almost via uh, by means of negation um, a positive concept of solidarity. We have to care for everyone because everyone is a potential.
1: Yes, but still direction. a limited one. So suddenly yeah, yeah. the the logic of it changed, right? So the people who were then excluded were those who had no epidemiological relevance to us or no sorry there was no epidemiological benefit in us protecting them that is yeah. anyone who wasn't in the country <laughs> yeah that's right. <laughs> right that's right so australians abroad it's not true to say they were equivalent to non-citizens abroad but they were much closer to being equivalent than we ever would have imagined that they could be and certainly mm. than i think many of them ever imagined that they could be so maybe the lesson here is and this is this is i think the extension of your point is that the overarching value of Australia is security. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's a really interesting observation to make because it's also what made Australia so good at responding to COVID, Hmm. uh, especially in 2020. So, you know, it's frequently recited that Australia, uh, sorry, uh, Melbourne was the world's most locked down city. Um, we were a nation that was very comfortable following rules. Um, we like to think of ourselves as larrikins and outlaws and so but we're actually, it couldn't be further from the truth. We love hmm. rules. We love obeying them. Um, even if we grumble about them occasionally, we go back and stick to the task until eventually we break, which is kind of what happened. And then COVID zero was abandoned. But that, that's us. We're, the nation of outlaws is probably the United States or Um, You know, parts of Europe where they just Mm. laugh at the idea that anyone would follow rules from a government like this. So maybe there's a continuity here. This is all of a piece that the organising principle of Australia is is one of security and securitisation. And so that ultimately everyone, in the end, when the acid comes, citizen or not, um, will be treated according to the security threat that they pose. That's it. Hmm. We just figured out Australia. I think that's I think that's almost
0: unarguable. the The question then becomes, and I think here then we get to the moral nub of the entire issue. I mean, you and I have said it before over the la- multiple times, in fact, over the last few years. I do think there was something impressive, without qualification about both Australia's response to the threat of the virus, about the preparedness of persons to make sacrifices. And I do think there was something meaningful, something, again, unqualifiedly meaningful about the statement, we are all in this together. Mm. Um, The problem, however, with that sort of thing being said within a political community that values security above all else. And I, I really, I've, I've, I, I do value, I think, the diagnosis of the French political theorist Hervé Jouvin um, uh, 17 years ago, where he said that the values of liberty, fraternity, equality, these are no longer the cardinal values of democracies. It's now security, health, and pleasure. Um, these, these are yep. the new that, that's, values. That
1: seems exactly right to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And, and before those, everything else bows. Everything else bows. Um, the mm-hmm. problem is when security is then raised to a kind of cardinal value, I'm not saying that security is, is unimportant, but when that's the trump card, that's the end to which everything else becomes mere means, then the real question that puts to expressions of solidarity like we're all in this together is, okay, who's the we? Just how far within and without national borders does that we extend? And I guess I've been impressed enough by the political philosophy of Richard Rorty to know that the makeup, the constitution of that we is not subject to recognition as if people are all latent members of that we, but it's something that needs to be created. It's something that needs to be cultivated. And I think now that we're at the end of the closure of borders, uh, the erection of, of Fortress Australia, then now may well be the perfect time to say, okay, just how limited, just how inadequate is our conception of solidarity, just how short have we fallen in the extension of the umbrella of that we to yeah, the people. Yeah, but it's circular.
1: It's circular, it right? Because how effective it has been or how successful yeah. it has been or what the shortfall has been can only be measured with respect to what overarching value you're seeking to serve. Mm. And if it's true. the thing you're seeking to serve is security, then it, we didn't fall short at all. It worked, right? Mm. The Australian death toll is so much lower than so many places around the world. So QED. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> sort of, it's done at that point. I, I'm just not sure in the end that it gets you to the point that I think you want to go, Scott. What's interesting to me is how malleable the we became. And so maybe what's easiest to do is think of it in terms of a hierarchy, at the top of which are Australian citizens who are in Australia, which then even got broken down into state-based localities once you mm, that's right. take in um, state borders and state wees, if you like. But then somewhere below, there were non-citizens in Australia and Australian citizens abroad who perhaps were even lower than the non-citizens in Australia, depending on exactly what you're looking at. Um, and then there's non-citizens abroad who, of course, are at the bottom of the pile. Um, but I, I just never conceived of it in that way. I feel like – I don't know if that's a permanent fixture or that's just now been – that's just a temporary state of affairs that had to exist in order to serve the overarching security narrative or security yeah. value. Um Maybe there's nothing permanent to derive from it beyond that.
0: Yeah. But I think, I mean, where, what what really matters here, I, I think, is that within any condition of emergency, um, sacrifice is required. Uh, yeah. Within conditions where there is an overarching or a countervailing or an undergirding sense of solidarity, um, I may be required to make this sacrifice now, but I'm not. Doing it alone, and it's something that is time time limited, and it's in the interests of what is you know undoubtedly a greater good. So solidarity, high sense a high sense of solidarity combines a willingness to sacrifice with the value, the virtue of consent. Under the rubric of securitization, however, sacrifice then becomes demanded or required, or simply mm-hmm. implicit. And sacrifice can then be alloyed with certain forms of cruelty where yep. uh, the the umbrella doesn't extend as far as they are. And here maybe may be non-English speaking communities, minority communities, people in certain, say, western or southwestern suburbs of Sydney in public housing towers, for instance. Um, uh, so the element of consent is withdrawn from it. And because of the relative cruelty with which... Those measures are applied. It also means that the fundamental character, the fundamental quality or aspect of any sense of solidarity, namely the ability to regard, to recognize the pain or the humiliation of another human being, that then becomes disabled. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and that I think, that I think is what is maybe what isn't being addressed quite as mm. thoroughly as we
1: as it should be. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I'd say disabled is too strong a term. I think there was acknowledgement of it, but. Um, it so didn't bear enough weight. Yeah, in that's, I yeah. think that's a better yeah. point. Okay. Um, this is the Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you may be doing right now, but you can also listen to us as a podcast. So you can do that anytime you like. Of course, either on the ABC Listen app or by following the Mindfield on your podcast platform of choice.
0: Um, our guest is Clayton Chin. He is senior lecturer in political theory at the University of Melbourne. A few funny things about Clayton. He is a very, very fine political theorist on Australian nationalism. He is one of the most subtle thinkers about multiculturalism that I know. And he is a world expert on the political philosophy of Richard Rorty. Uh, Plus, he's ordinarily based in Melbourne, which Clayton kind of makes you in most ways the perfect person to speak to on this topic. However, you're not speaking to us from Melbourne, are you?
2: (laughs) No, it's, uh, I'm not indeed. Um, and uh, thank you very much for having me on, on the show, Willie and Scott. Um, but, uh, but no, I'm, I'm speaking to you now all the way from, from Toronto, Canada.
0: This is a nice way, I think, of setting up the conversation. Why, why is that, Clayton? Why are you there?
2: Um, Well, uh, it's quite a complicated story, but one deeply kind of related to the discussion at hand. Um, I am a a Canadian citizen by by birth and and an Australian permanent resident. Uh, I've been living in Australia since 2015 and uh, towards the tail end of, of the really hard borders, of a uh, of, uh, really hard border closure, I should say, in October last year, um, my my family and I had to apply for one of these famous exemptions to leave because uh, we needed to visit a quite unwell family member. Uh, and at that point in time, uh, which was actually only about a month before they opened the border to permanent residents and citizens leaving, um, there was no indication yet that that was going to happen. And so we chose to go through the whole rigmarole. Um And part of the agreement we had to make was to was to not come back for three months. Uh, part of the rules that that uh, uh, that I think weren't weren't that widely publicized, and so I've been in a couple parts of the world now. Uh, currently in Canada, where my family uh, is and where I'm from originally, um, and sort of staring with binoculars at at Australia as so much changes from the from the deep lockdown that I knew.
0: Hmm.
2: So let's let's begin with this idea of of solidarity, because I think
0: one of the things that I've found very very impressive in Richard Rorty's conception of solidarity is mm-hmm. that it's not a given. And it's not something that can be exchanged or invoked or pulled out in an argument as if it were a big transcendental gun uh, or a trump card. Um, In other words, solidarity is not a given. Solidarity is not a transcendental fact. Uh, Solidarity is something that is worked for or that possibly even is achieved or at very best is created out of contingent circumstances. So, I mean, do you think it's useful – for us to be invoking a concept, a big concept like solidarity when trying to understand Australia's experience over the last two years and uh, I guess Australia's particular way. And I do think there is something peculiar about it uh, of understanding its borders.
2: Definitely. No, no, I, I, I really do. And I, I would say that in a certain sense, we need more of these types of, uh, of big concepts as part of this this conversation. And the reason is is that this Pandemic and the types of state actions that it required, and the particularly strong reactions from certain types of governments, like uh, the current Australian government, um, really did throw up some of the fundamental tensions within um, a state model that we have and that we that we live with uh, throughout much of the world today, uh, and particularly tensions within the kind of liberal democratic model of citizenship that you and and Willie have been talking about over the past few minutes. Um, and so we going back, I think, to these really big questions, these questions that, in a sense, are the unanswered questions of modern political life, um, I think really helps us understand how something like the pandemic, in fact, challenges a lot of the things that we take for granted or that we took for granted as part and parcel of the kind of political settlement of our lives, uh, and which are now, I think, things that, that we realise are are much more fragile than they than they might have seemed before.
1: So this is, uh, I suppose, the central query that I have, Clayton, is that? Yeah. Do, I mean, we're talking here about it revealing something, right? That there are elements mm-hmm. of our life that are fragile. And we didn't understand they were fragile, and then the pandemic kind of revealed it. And what I'm wrestling with is whether or not that's actually true. Mm-hmm. Is it? Is it right for us to be trying to extract insight into ourselves from such an unusual, extreme situation that forces us into decisions that? we just would never want to make and never imagine we could make. So to use a different example or a different country as an example, was it Italy early on when they had their horrific COVID wave and they were the first country um, to really visibly have this as far as we could tell? And hospitals were having to make decisions about who would live and die, basically, who would get treatment, who wouldn't. And if I'm not correct, Scott, I know you know this better than me, they made that decision partly at least based on age, right? Yeah,
0: that's right.
1: Now, can we derive from that an Italian value towards the aged or towards age generally? Because one of the things I would have perhaps stereotypically assumed about Italian culture was that was actually very good at celebrating the aged. There are tight family structures and so on that meant that there were high degree of solidarity towards the elderly and yet in this moment forced to make a, a tragic decision, this is the decision the medical system made. Am I just misguided in trying to extrapolate a principle from that?
2: I mean, obviously, I think there would probably be cultural assumptions that would vary in context that would affect how the, those types of decisions are made about, you know, whose life is more valuable, what's the value of of, um, of people at different stages or even different sectors of society. But I think there's a big difference between a healthcare system and a federal government. The federal government oversees our political community. It's the current voice of our political community. Um, and it, it acts with a kind of legitimacy that no other institution in our society really does. Um, and it's, it acts with it in a way that's kind of less bounded, I guess, by what we might think of as kind of objective measures that w- that we would tend to associate with something like medical science. So, of course, there's lots of questions about medical ethics, of course, that you know can be contested from various perspectives. But I think in terms of the symbolic value of an act of government versus an act of the healthcare system, when when the government chose to, chooses to do something like close the borders and have all the kind of consequences on different um, groups that you guys were laying out earlier, they, in a sense, demonstrated or spoke a kind of understanding of politics an understanding of, of who's important and who's not in a way that we would we wouldn't assume another actor was in that sense. So I think the the loadedness of, of a decision like this um, affects people. Even if it, 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 even though it's not a matter of life and death in the way that the uh, that the example you're using is, I think the the consequences on political culture and the types of questions it throws up for for a political community are in a sense greater in some ways.
1: Yeah, but we are talking here about trying to um, deduce uh, cultural assumptions or cultural value hierarchies or whatever from the way in which we've responded to um, uh, you know an event as rare as unusual or extreme as a pandemic. And so I'm not, I'm not actually so sure that the distinction between the federal government and a health system is that relevant if you're talking about these things as expressions of underlying hierarchies or expressions of underlying values because surely a health system responds informed by those cultural assumptions just as readily as a, mm. as a federal government does. I'm Sorry, Waleed, I'm, I, I'm
0: not sure I agree with that. Uh, I mean, healthcare systems are very, very peculiar cultures with forms of hierarchy and expertise and, and let's put it this way, uh, and forms of ethical and organizational traditions that simply aren't replicated anywhere else, not even in the academy. Um, and f- uh, th- there would have to be a full-fledged concerted effort, it seems to me. Uh, within, say, medical institutions, not to give in to a kind of utilitarian calculus or an evaluation of relative qualities of life when when making the hard decision about allocating uh, ventilators, health care or whatever. In other words, that, that is an expression of a particular form of cultural Inculcation and the passing on of a, of a particular tradition. I mean, it is also but notable it's a subculture
1: I, rather than a national culture. Is that what you mean? Yes, right.
0: I think I think that that's that's right. But even more than that, I mean, one and this may invalidate the thing that I just said. I mean, it is interesting that one of the things that we do have, one of the things that marks or notes in many respects aspects uh, across uh, Southern Europe, uh, off the back of high levels of elder respect. There is a widening gulf or gap that seems to be emerging and that a number of political parties are exploiting um, a a degree of generational resentment uh, on the part of the young against the old um, that either plots against climate change. You've lived this way, you've been profligate and promiscuous, and now we have to pick up the tab or employment or uh, the availability of of houses. Um, so it, it may well be that those broader cultural trends allow there to be a kind of, let's say, a sacrificability of the aged. But I, I think I would go back to my earlier point. Um, what what Clayton said about, uh, about a kind of more general obligation on the part of a federal government, that seems... To me, right. And it's not just that these were under exceptional circumstances, although the pandemic certainly was that. It's that extraordinary measures taken by both state and federal governments were persistently met with widespread popular assent. Um, There wasn't rebellion, there wasn't dissatisfaction, there was a willingness to go on with that. Mm. And it gave the very clear sense that what the government did didn't cut across the national or cultural grain, that this is, in a very real way, who we are. This is what we do when the protection of the quote-unquote us is at stake. I guess my fundamental question here is, why was it that at no stage a kind of countervailing obligation that attends to the idea of solidarity, a countervailing obligation that goes to the us, that, okay, we have this obligation to bring people back if they are at risk, if they are stranded and homeless abroad, we have an obligation to bring them back that supervenes, that supersedes uh, the protection of the health of the body politic. Um, I don't think that's a, that's a zero-sum game. Of course, there are forms of, of quarantine and of isolation that go along with it, but it's the fact that there wasn't that supervening sense that our obligation to others overcomes, outweighs the kind of zero-sum of, of national security. That, that is what I find, I think, most troubling. Ahead.
2: I mean, part of the, the difficulty, I think, here, and, and Scott was kind of tra- pointing this, I think, is, is that there is this kind of strong tendency in moments like this to read off. And so I agree with you, Willi, about your point four. Um, read off kind of national culture from these types of decisions. And of course, we don't know what another government would have done, right, in these, in, in these circumstances. Um, but at the same time, I think Scott's really right that that the reaction to this seemed to be to be at least an indication that th- that there's something, there's some kind of deep chord um, within Australian political culture uh, that values something like security, something like um, a sense of definite stability over uh, some of the bonds of citizenship that you might think about in and, and, and which uh, I think, Scott, you seem to be um, uh, pushing towards. And, and it's, it just seems to be the case that that's not the same in other Similar countries, you know, countries we would hmm. think of as, as as most similar cases. Uh, there wasn't a demand to close the borders in the same way. When they did close the borders uh, in, in countries like Canada, for example, where I am now, they did so with the proviso that citizens could come in, uh, no matter what level of border closure they had. Um, they didn't make it, you know, institutionally sometimes more difficult or a little bit more arduous, but there wasn't an absolute right to come in. And as a result, the flights kept coming, right? Um, hmm. And so there, there is something I think there insofar as. The level of awareness of other national policies during during the pandemic was was astronomical, right? Every person on the street was aware of, of their national policy and was comparing it to others, right? They yeah. all became politically literate in, in a way that most people were not previously, uh, if there's something good that came out of it, right?
1: Um, well, and, if only uh, temporarily.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely, right? Yeah. But, uh, but it must indicate something that, that there wasn't other, you know, Other national cultures calling for this type of action, although obviously other countries did do some things similarly, but by and large, no. Um, And that there wasn't then a a correlative rejection um, in Australia of this policy, which was not being imposed on many others.
1: So, I mean, we should, of course, point out that Australian citizens did, for the most part, retain the right to return home. It's just that Mm, the barriers were practical. And financial. I mean, there was a cap on how many could arrive in a given month or week or whatever. Uh, There was a limit in hotel quarantine places. Hotel quarantine was compulsory rather than having um, quarantine at home, which would have facilitated more arrivals. And people kept getting having their flights cancelled or whatever, and exorbitant um, fees were being charged by the airlines, not the government. But you know, Mm -hmm. this is an interactive process, right? So, so it's not an absolute thing. Yeah, would you, Before I move on and ask you any questions about that, Clayton, would you say that was markedly different to what you saw in Canada?
2: Well, I mean, I don't want to generalize, um, but yes, insofar as uh, because there was always a right to leave and enter, and I, I, there was a very different type of impact on the availability of flights. As a result, right. so the airline industry reacted to the border closure um, and particularly the arrivals cap, in my understanding, in a very different way in Australia by just basically closing the pathways. When, when we left Australia, uh, it was very hard to get a flight out. It was extremely hard. And one of the reasons why we couldn't come back earlier, um, other than the fact that when you apply, you kind of have to agree to, to leave for, for three months, was that there simply were no flights back in in kind of the October-November period. And so there wasn't really an option. At one point we thought, because it was my partner's family who was ill, not, not my own, um, that, that that she might just leave and come back. Uh, but that quickly became very obviously impossible mm-hmm. um, because it just wasn't available. And that in my understanding was not the case in basically any other kind of part of the world as I mm-hmm. understood it. And um, there was always flights going in and out, uh, reduced of course, because people were not electing to do this, but people who needed to do it could do it. Mm.
1: That's the voice of Clayton Chin, Senior Lecturer in Political Theory at the University of Melbourne, who's in Canada at the moment. Long story. Go back to the start of the show if you <laughs> want to hear it. Um, this is The minefield. Field. Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. All right. Oh, did you want to go? Yeah, that? I do want to go because I want go, to. Please. I want to throw in the one other thing we haven't raised, which seems to be at the centre of so much discussion of Australianness ever since I've been a kid, and that is the question of race. Okay, so interesting. Uh, how would I explain this? The common view among people of a certain political persuasion, I, perhaps you might even say a fashionable view, fashionable view, is that Australia has a view of Australianness that is highly racialised. And so white people are more Australian than people who are not white and so on. And this gets expressed in all kinds of ways. It could get expressed in, I don't know, the way in which we react to and the debates we have around multiculturalism or around the criminal justice system, or it could be um, Mm. to do with refugee policy. I think it's less convincing on conventional immigration because actually John Howard's prime ministership was – the real turning point at, at mm. which Australian uh, migration to Australia became overwhelmingly Asian rather than European. Um, he doesn't often get seen in that light, but that is actually what his migration program did for economic reasons. But nonetheless, you get this sort of idea that there is a very clear linear relationship between race and Australianness in the public imagination. I think there's also an undeniable truth to that, although I think it's frequently overstated. And I wonder if the COVID experience has helped illustrate that it is overstated, because one of the things that happened in reconstructing Australianness and the rights of Australian citizenship in this way, making it difficult for people to leave, making it difficult for expats to come back who were frequently white, is that it showed that we were quite prepared to, under certain circumstances in the service of a security aim, as we've established, Um, we were prepared to extend rights and solidarity to non-white people that we weren't prepared to extend to white Australian citizens simply because of their geography. Now, immediately I will hear the Hauser protest, what about the India ban? And, uh, you know, that we didn't apply that to the US and we didn't apply that to the UK or whatever. But that's never been a totally persuasive example for me just because it seems to factor out the variant question And precisely what Delta, which was brand new, what it was doing to India and how much more infectious and virulent it was. And so that Australia was, I think, right to be especially scared of this particular variant. And so it proved, I mean, it ended up being the variant that got rid of COVID zero in in Australia. So I'm just not sure that that example quite makes the point that some people who wield it want to make. But I just want to I was interested in your reflections on this, Clayton. Sort of the, to what extent this experience has to complicate or, or or nuance the narratives we'd had before COVID about the relationship between Australianness and whiteness?
2: Thanks, Lloyd. Um, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I hadn't thought of it in those terms. Um, I think you're right that the that the the common narrative amongst uh, as you call them, people of a, a certain set of views, is that Australian uh, Australianness is highly racialized, and I, I and I think I probably sit somewhere similar to you that I think that that point is is valid though can be overstated and sometimes is seen solely as a kind of delegitimization tool in order to stop talking about national identity as something progressive, um, something that I you know am not particularly interested in doing, um, as you might have gotten a sense from from Scott's intro, but I do think that the, the importance of race and particularly kind of I guess otherness generally is important in a way uh, that that doesn't factor into the story you just told, and that's particularly that um, we can talk a lot about Australians locked out, and that's obviously a really important question uh, in terms of citizenship and entitlement and solidarity, but we haven't talked that much about permanent residents and migrants locked in mm, that's right. um, and that and that is a group that basically that in in my experience and 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 of course you know being who I am, a lot of my Social circles are professionals who are migrants, uh, as well as Australians who are professionals as well, who I know through, through one set of relations or another. And that group, I think, felt very under discussed, I suppose, in the last two years of border discussions, you know, that the real impact on migrant families of being not only locked in, but having their families locked out and you know, families and friends and social networks locked out. um, that, that was a very big impact on their well being, their mental health, and so on. Uh, in a way that not necessarily, I don't think any of them would say that should have changed the policy, but that would seem to be completely undiscussed in a certain sense, right? That um, the difficulty of being for, you know, not knowing when you will be able to um, sort of enjoy these connections once again was a really deep difficulty. And that, in a sense, that kind of lack of discussion, I think, made a lot of people feel. Quite like, I mean, not that they're, you know, a lot of them wouldn't be citizens yet, but they'd be second class citizens or second class kind of members of, of, of the emerging political community. And that would affect a lot of people who are citizens, especially who, you know, have, have migrated within their lifetimes or within the last couple
1: of decades. You or, know. or even who um, born here. I mean, my entire extended family's overseas,
2: for example. Yeah, exactly. So lots of people were affected by, by this in varying types of ways. And I think that the lack of kind of attention to that consequence of it had a real big impact on the way that that community, that loose community, because it's really not a community in some way, uh, felt about where they belonged in Australia.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm Sorry, I could keep going on, but I know that it's better for the show if Scott goes <laughs> rather well, than me continuing my fellow. Well, no, I, mean, I mean, I actually
0: think this has been a crucial line of thought and and, and it was the issue of the extent to which our sense of, our experience of Australia as a political community extends to and actively incorporates, uh, particularly permanent residents, but also temporary. I, I mean, there, there is something about the experience of proximity here that really has, in some respects, brought people together in ways that one could not have imagined a few years ago, you know, sort of overlooking maybe some of the barriers or some of the uh, divides that are assumed to to be there. Um, and yet you're right, Clayton. I mean, the uh, the extent to which one, if one's family is primarily overseas, one's heart is only half here at best. And that really does do something to one's experience of political community. Can I just... Can I say something or can I put something to the two of you though which is the flip side of that? I mean essentially we're talking about others but proximate others within the Australian political community. What about those I just don't know what how exactly to make of it or what to make of this? What about those who have in fact experienced the pandemic not as being in some ways affected by the closure of borders? Say international borders, but by the closure of state borders and also now by vaccine mandates, they are they are internal others. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, who do not feel connected to the Australian community? I mean, this is what Canada's seen right now, Clayton, in the yeah, form of yeah. the sort of the massive rolling convoy protest. It's something that we've seen to a lesser degree and certainly with less organization here. But, I mean, you could arguably say that if solidarity extends outside of Australia's borders, then solidarity needs to go very, very deeply within Australia's borders as well. How are we to – I mean, I, I know there's a big question and leaving it to the end, but is, is there any direction you can begin pointing us towards?
2: I think this circles back in a certain sense to to, to something that we – I think I mentioned before and that that both of you were talking about before I came in, um, which is the kind of effect or or the way in which this pandemic has exposed tensions that were always there in a certain sense, but that we didn't necessarily reflect on or that that we didn't think of as massive priorities. I mean, pushing the internal state borders, I guess, question to to the side for one second. The rise of kind of um, virulent opponents to basically state led action on. The pandemic um, you know, around vaccine mandates or around you know, lockdown measures or restrictions in general, I think has demonstrated the real presence of, of a group of people who in many ways we don't tend to think of as others and who, and who don't occupy one of the um, social identities of, uh, that we think of as excluded because at least, you know, say in the Canadian case, like the truckers movement is overwhelmingly Anglo-Saxon and white. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't realized these people feel deeply alienated from the state, are not interested in collective action, do not see themselves as as, as required to participate in, in personal restrictions in order to protect others, um, and who are deeply frustrated with the way in which most national and state governments within, uh, and regional governments within, within states took up and immediately engaged in really quite significant coordinated action in order to address the pandemic, Um, and that these people are fundamentally feel quite alienated by being in a society in which that could be done. Um, And they didn't think of of this society, uh, you know, and and to the degree they exist in Australia, they didn't think of Australia as a society that was like that, uh, and and, and that they belong to, you know, the, the the society that they feel solidarity with is much more individualistic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh God, that raises a lot of questions about how exactly that that (laughs) idea lodged in the minds of people in a place like Australia... Um I would say the alienation predates COVID and so it finds new yes. expressions. But anyway. Um like all good guests, Clayton, you've left us with another show to do. So we're only halfway <laughs> but we don't have the time to continue. But thanks so much for joining us today. It's been so great to pick your brains. Um that's Clayton Sheen, so senior lecturer in political theory at the University of Melbourne, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is an at an end. We'll be back next week with the succession show that one person's talking about. We'll see you then.